Hello, I'm Darrell Bloodworth of the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd in Maitland, Florida. This is Lesson 7 in our study of the Gospel of John. And we pick up with John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This chapter opens about six months after the events described in chapter 5. Jesus is now back in Galilee with his disciples, and they've been traveling around the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. Crowds have been following Jesus. And John tells us the crowds have been following because they saw the signs he was performing by healing the sick. We can assume the sick came to him for healing, but many came just to see the miracles taking place. Any miracle being performed would usually draw a crowd. John also tells us that Jesus went up a mountain and sat down, which means he was teaching the crowd. The mountain was likely the Golan Heights or another mountain in the vicinity of it, just north of the Sea of Galilee. This would place them a few miles north of the town of Bethsaida. John also tells us this is a time close to the Passover, so it would have been in the spring. Jesus was in Jerusalem for Passover the previous year, and he will be in Jerusalem for Passover the following year, which will be the year of his crucifixion. So the story opens with Jesus seeing a large crowd, somewhere around 5,000 people, approaching. So Jesus poses the question to Philip, where will we get the food for all these people? Now remember, Philip was from Bethsaida, as we learned in chapter 1. So he's asking the person with local knowledge, where do we get food? Now John whispers to us that Jesus was just testing Philip. He already knew what he was going to do. But Philip clearly thinks trying to feed all these people would be hopeless because even if they could find food to buy, they couldn't afford it. 
The wage for a worker for about six to eight months or more was 200 denarii. And even that wouldn't be enough to give this many people more than a bite or two. Andrew pipes up with information that shows just how desperate the situation is. The only food available is the lunch of one boy, five barley loaves and two fish. The two fish would have been the small variety found in the Sea of Galilee. Barley loaves were not the finest bread. In fact, they were deemed more appropriate for slaves, but uh, this was all they had. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes at this point. There are thousands of hungry people there, and they had no food to offer them except the five barley loaves and two fish from a little boy. Yet Jesus tells us the disciples, uh, he tells the disciples to have the people sit down, as Mark tells us, uh, in groups of a hundred and groups of fifty. And then Jesus offers thanks, breaks the loaves, and has the disciples distribute the multiplied food to all. And all ate all they wanted. The disciples were as dumbfounded by what they saw as we would be had we witnessed what happened. Then, as was customary in that culture, Jesus had the disciples gather up the leftovers, which came to twelve baskets full. Now, the baskets referred to here were small baskets in which one would carry, say, a lunch for the day. So when they picked up 12 baskets of remains, there was enough for another meal for the 12 disciples. Nothing was wasted. Some commentators have attempted to characterize this miracle as Jesus convincing the people to become unselfish with the food they all had brought with them, so that by sharing, they all had sufficient food. But I believe that thought is refuted by verse 14, which states that when the people saw the miracle, they declared, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And remember, the prophet who is to come into the world is the name of the prophet Moses said would come to deliver the Jews. In other words, it was another name for the Messiah. They were not ready to declare someone the Messiah just for making the people act unselfishly. It took seeing a miracle to make such a declaration. Verse 15, though, shows Jesus' response to this belief that he might be the Messiah. It says his time had not yet come, and he did not come to be the kind of king these people were looking for. So he slipped away to the mountain to pray and be by himself. Let's pick up now with verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. Interestingly, this miracle is the only one that is included in all four Gospels. Mark's gospel tells us Jesus instructed the disciples to get into their boat and head back toward Capernaum, 
which was about four or five miles away across the lake. Night falls as the disciples were rowing into a headwind back across the lake, and they aren't making much progress. They're straining against the wind and the waves. All of a sudden, they look up and see a man walking on the water coming near the boat. You can imagine how shocked and afraid they probably were, just as we would be. Mark's gospel tells us that they thought it was a ghost and cried out. Well, Jesus quickly identifies himself and gets in the boat, whereupon the wind died down and the waves ceased. And then suddenly they were at the shore. We might ask, why this miracle? What, what is its purpose? And neither John nor the other gospel writers explicitly tell us why. But remember that John has chosen what he included in his gospel carefully. He said he included what he, uh, what he did to convince the reader that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And through believing in him, we might have eternal life. So this episode is another confirmation that Jesus is God in the flesh and that even the elements obey him. And Jesus is very intentional about getting his disciples to understand this. They have to know this to carry out the mission Jesus will eventually charge them with. Let's pick up now in verses 22 through 27. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. They also saw that Jesus had not got into the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. So we find that the day after the 5,000 were fed, uh, the crowd, or at least some of them that he had fed, realized there had been only one boat, and Jesus didn't get into that boat with the disciples. Apparently there were other boats available for them to get on, and they got on those boats and headed for Capernaum to look for Jesus. They find him and ask, when did you get here? As Jesus often does, he doesn't respond to the question being asked, but rather goes to the heart of the situation. He says, in essence, you aren't looking for me because you saw signs of who I am. You ate your fill and are looking for another meal. You should be looking for food that leads to and sustains eternal life, which I'm willing to give you. And the Father has blessed what I've said. Let's pick up now with verses 28 to 34. Then they said to him, What must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? 
What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Their response to Jesus' statement about food that leads to eternal life is telling. Their question is, what must we do to perform the works of God? They clearly are bound up by the works righteousness belief system that was common at the time. They felt they had to find and perform the works that God requires for their salvation. Jesus' response was, the only work God requires is that you believe in the one God has sent, referring to himself. Well, this wasn't sufficient to them, apparently, and they respond by asking what sign Jesus will give to convince them they should believe his words. Now, keep in mind, they had just seen a miraculous sign the day before when he fed the 5,000. And John was quite clear that they recognized the feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle, and they proclaimed him to be the prophet that comes into the world, as Moses had prophesied. Interesting, they even refer to the manna from heaven, their forefathers in Eden, and attribute the manna to Moses. In short, they seem to be saying, if you want us to truly believe you are the prophet to come, you must perform a miracle similar to Moses, giving our fathers manna to eat. Well, Jesus immediately corrects their error. It was not Moses, but God himself who gave them manna, and Jesus says, It is God who now gives them true bread, which comes down from heaven, to give life to the world. Now, it's pretty apparent they did not understand what Jesus is saying, although they ask him to give them this bread always. Let's pick up with verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So Jesus gets very specific with them in his response. They ask for the bread which Jesus has described, and he plainly tells them he himself is the bread of life. This is another analogy or metaphor Jesus is giving, similar to telling the woman at the well he can give her living water, or similar to telling Nicodemus he must be born again. The hungry person wants bread which sustains life, but he will quickly get hungry again. The person receiving Jesus as the bread of life, which sustains us spiritually, will not get hungry again or thirst again for spiritual life. But there's a problem which Jesus addresses. They've seen his miracles, 
and heard his teaching, but they still don't believe who he is. He tells them he will receive all whom the Father has given him, and he will cast none of them out. He's come down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who has sent him. The Father's will is that all who believe in the Son will have eternal life, and he will raise them up on the last day. So let's pick up now with verses 41 through 51. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So although the crowd has just said they want the bread Jesus is talking about, uh, they begin to complain about Jesus, uh, saying he is the bread of life. And more importantly, that he said he came down from heaven. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Jesus' response is blunt. Stop complaining. Everyone who listens to God will be drawn to me and will find salvation and be raised up on the last day. Jesus again compares himself to the manna their ancestors ate in the wilderness to sustain their lives and points out that they eventually died. He, on the other hand, is the bread of life that has come down from heaven that will enable them to live for eternity. And then really Jesus astounds him by saying, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Once again, Jesus is speaking metaphorically, but they misunderstand and have visions of cannibalism. So the grumbling and the complaining grows. Let's pick up with verses 52 through 59. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my body is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father... So whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. As these verses show, the Jews were definitely having difficulty understanding what Jesus was saying. Among themselves they ask, 
How can he give us his flesh to eat? And at this, Jesus doubles down and says again that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they will not have eternal life. Biblical scholars have a variety of ideas about just what Jesus meant with these words, but clearly he wasn't speaking literally. He was telling them that his incarnation would be the source of their salvation. But to have eternal life, they must be partakers of the life of Christ by abiding in him. He may also be looking forward to the Eucharist, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which he had not yet instituted. For it also symbolizes the fact that by faith we abide in him, thereby partaking of the very life of God. Again, he points out that the manna from heaven did not prevent the Israelites from eventually dying, whereas those who eat the bread of life, Jesus himself, will live forever. John then whispers to us that Jesus said all this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. I think it's safe to say that none of them had ever heard teaching like this before in the synagogue. Let's pick up now with verses 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you there are some who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. For he, though one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So we see in these verses that this teaching by Jesus was not only hard for the Jewish leaders to accept, John points out to us that many of Jesus' own disciples, although we're not talking about the twelve. Remember, Jesus had many disciples in addition to the twelve. And these others were finding it difficult to understand and accept what Jesus was teaching. So Jesus asked, does this teaching offend you? And then he asked whether it would offend them to see Jesus returning to heaven where he was before as will happen uh, when Jesus ascends following his resurrection. This addresses their mumbling over Jesus saying he had come down from heaven. But Jesus adds a helpful hint as to what he means by his statements. He says, It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. So the comments he has just made are to be taken in a spiritual sense. But he knows and tells them that even some of his followers did not believe in him. John helpfully adds that Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe and who would betray him. 
Despite Jesus' attempt to get them to understand his statements in a spiritual sense, some of his disciples, although not the twelve, rejected him and no longer followed him. In fact, so many left that he asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? And it's Peter that responds on behalf of the twelve. To whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus' response to his statement is interesting. In an apparent acknowledgement that his teaching might be difficult to accept, he says that he himself chose the twelve. Yet one of them is a devil, referencing Judas Iscariot, although uh, Jesus doesn't identify him. Clearly, this is a low point in Jesus' ministry. And as we see time and again in John's Gospel, even those closest to him often didn't understand him or understand what his mission was. As we will see in the next chapter, this was also true even of Jesus' own family. So we'll pick up in the next lesson with chapter 7.